the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network presents Vatican Insider with Joan Lewis. Each week, Joan brings you news from inside the Vatican and the church around the world, as well as interviews and answers to your questions. Now, here's the host of Vatican Insider, Joan Lewis. Welcome to a new edition of Vatican Insider. I'll look at the news in a minute, but first want to explain the interview segment. On the Palm Sunday weekend in that segment, I offered part one of a special entitled, Who is the Man of the Shroud? The Shroud of Turin, that is believed to wrap the body of Jesus in the tomb. Now, some of the news highlights. Sunday, April 9th, was Easter Sunday, of course. Pope Francis presided at the Mass of the Resurrection in a flower-bedecked St. Peter's Square in the presence of 45,000 faithful a number that doubled for the traditional Easter Irby and Orby to the city and world message. After days of cool weather and intermittent rain, sunshine blessed the day. 35,000 flowers and plants from the Netherlands decorated the square. This offering from Dutch florists follows a tradition begun in 1985 with the beatification of the Dutch Carmelite priest Titus Bransma. Pope Francis presided over the Mass of the Resurrection, but, as is traditional, did not pronounce a homily as he had already delivered his reflections at the Easter Vigil. The Pope began his Urbi and Orbi message, however, by announcing the joyous message of this day when we proclaim that Christ is risen. In Jesus, the passage of humanity from death to life, sin to grace, fear to confidence, and desolation to communion— has been made. And this means that humanity's journey has a sure footing in hope, and therefore can move forward with confidence in facing the many challenges now and ahead. The Lord has built us a bridge of life in defeating death, making it for us the most important and beautiful day of history. Monday, April 10th. In Italy, this was Pasquetta, Little Easter, a huge national holiday and an especially big day for families as they spend it together with the main attraction being a long, festive meal. Pope Francis greeted pilgrims in St. Peter's Square from the midday recitation of the Regina Chaley Prayer. This is recited in place of the Angelus from Easter Sunday to Pentecost. The Regina Chaley, Queen of Heaven, recalls Christ's victory over death. Tuesday, April 11th, was a quiet day in the Vatican, but on Wednesday, April 12th, the Holy Father presided at the general audience and focused on the life, times, and words of St. Paul in his continuing catechesis on apostolic zeal. Francis said, from his earlier experiences as a persecutor of the Church, Paul was well aware of the danger of misguided zeal, or a zeal motivated not by love of Christ, but by vanity or self-assertion. Authentic zeal for the gospel is instead, Paul teaches, completely centered on Christ and the power of his resurrection. The Pope said in his letters, Paul uses the imagery of putting on the armor of God, and he exhorts his listeners to have their feet shod in readiness to proclaim the gospel of peace. The image is eloquent, said Francis, since the feet of an evangelist must be solidly planted, yet constantly in movement, ever ready to confront new situations in the effort to proclaim the good news with creativity and conviction. Also Wednesday, 
the Vatican published Pope Francis's 61st Motu Proprio that further amends penal legislation and the judicial system of Vatican City State. Thursday, April 13th. Among the Pope's private audiences were their royal highnesses, King Albert II and Queen Paula of Belgium. He also welcomed members of the Italian Religious Association of Social and Health Institutes, ARIS, praising the Church's exemplary witness in taking care of the ill and insisting no one must feel alone in illness. Expressing his appreciation and encouragement, the Pope observed that Aris is involved in the management of health care facilities of Christian inspiration and could be compared to the Inn of the Good Samaritan, where the sick can receive the oil of consolation and the wine of hope. Also Thursday, Francis met with the Union of Major Superiors in Italy to mark their 70th chapter, and he offered them three points of reflection. He said, The Lord is calling you to be with renewed enthusiasm, women witnesses of the risen Lord, on a synodal path, and sowers of hope. Friday, April 14th, Pope Francis met with a group of diocesan oblate brothers from the Italian Archdiocese of Milan, and he urged consecrated religious men to give themselves completely to the mission of serving others in humble fidelity. He said fraternity should offer religious brothers interior joy, since it represents their unique way of being like Jesus. The Pope also reflected on the brothers' identity as oblates, which comes from the Latin word oblatio, or oblation, meaning the gift of self in service. Also Friday, Pope Francis received a delegation of representatives of ETA Airways, Italy's state airline that provides the Holy Father with all of his outgoing flights of his apostolic journeys. As per diplomatic agreements, he almost always flies back to the Vatican on board the national airline of the nation from which he departs. Thank you for landing here in the Vatican, Pope Francis said. In a way, you represent the Pope's wings, for you enable the successor of Peter to fly to the ends of the earth, carrying the gospel of hope and peace. Sometimes I wonder, said Francis, had St. Paul been able to travel by plane, what would have happened? And indeed, the Pope continued, it was the Pope who bore the saint's name, who boarded an Alitalia DC-8 on January 4, 1964, and became the first pontiff in history to board an airplane for an apostolic pilgrimage. In a fortnight, God willing, said the Holy Father, I will depart from my 41st apostolic pilgrimage to visit Hungary, and then there will be Marseille and Mongolia and other places that are on the waiting list. He then noted that Ita, which recently replaced Alitalia, provides a service that requires competence, care, and attention to many details, including, quote, the not easy logistics of his own trips. The Pope, who, as you see, has some mobility problems, knows this well, but thanks also to your help, can continue to travel. Well, those are the news highlights of the week, but now stay tuned for part two of Who is the Man of the Shroud? EWTN 
teaching the truth. I'm a devout Methodist. I've went to the same church since I was a little boy, and I just feel like my church is starting to leave me. I listen to this station a lot uh, when I'm on the track or when I'm working. It's comforting to just listen to this day in and day out, and every day it just draws me a little more near to it. How do I leave what my roots are for something that I know will better me in the future? It's just real hard cutting that tie. I'm Roy Brown, Executive Director for Billings Catholic Radio. Catholic Radio is arguably the greatest tool for evangelization. Radio has the power to speak directly to individuals and creates a sense of one-on-one fellowship. There is no better way to evangelize than through a relationship where we can share and bring the love and joy of Christ to another's daily life. The world needs EWTN Catholic Radio, now more than ever. I think we make prayer very complicated. You know, nobody has to tell you how to talk to a friend or a neighbor or or probably somebody in the streetcar or you pass somebody in a a restaurant. It comes spontaneous, it's natural. Well, that's how prayer is, it's spontaneous. Sometimes, you just kind of speak from your heart. Welcome back to Vatican Insider, Here's Joan Lewis. Welcome to part two of my account of the Shroud at Turin, believed to be the linen cloth that wrapped the body of the crucified Jesus during his three days in the tomb. Last weekend, I looked at its journey through time and history and mentioned just some of the many tests done on this cloth since Secondo Pia took his famous photograph in 1898, a photo whose negative of a negative became a remarkable positive and reopened the case for the authenticity of the Shroud. Now looking back in a moment in the history of the Shroud. In 1578, St. Charles Borromeo, Archbishop of Milan, expressed the desire to venerate the precious relic of Christianity, but because of frail health, could not cross the Alps from Italy for the arduous trip because, of course, at the time it was in France. The Duke of Savoy, Emmanuel Filiberto, shortened the Archbishop's trip by bringing the Shroud to Turin in May of that year. It has been in Turin for the past 437 years, except for the brief periods when it was removed to protect it from the dangers of war. For years the Shroud was wrapped widthwise around a wooden spool and housed in a silver reliquary above the main altar of an exceptionally beautiful chapel of black and gray marble designed by the Baroque architect Guarino Guarini. The chapel, especially designed for the Shroud, is next to the Cathedral of St. John and is a masterpiece of architectural daring with an extraordinary dome of interlacing arches culminating in a gilded sunburst. At present, the Shroud is kept flat inside an aluminum and glass case at a constant temperature in an atmosphere of argon gas. It is covered by a drape embroidered with words in Latin that mean, We revere your holy shroud, O Lord, and through it we meditate on your passion. On numerous occasions since 1898, when Secondo Pia photographed the shroud, including the 1969 appointment of a Roman diocesan commission to study the linen, photographs using techniques vastly superior to those of 1898 have been taken all upon special appointment and with the permission of its then legal owners, the House of Savoy, and now the Holy See. 
With these constantly improved photographs, the studies of the shroud multiplied and intensified over the years, involving many nations and many men and women. In the early 20th century, Dr. Pierre Barbet, a Paris surgeon and forerunner of today's syndenologist, that is, experts on the shroud, completed tests on cadavers to parallel the findings with what he, quote, read in the life-sized photographs of the crucified man. Joining him were Paul Vignon, a French biologist, and Yves Delage, a member of the Academy of Science in Paris. Later, Giovanni Giudica Cordiglia, degreed in medicine at Turin and in law at Pavia, and a professor of legal medicine in Milan, devoted his life and talents to the study of the shroud in yet another effort to arrive at its authenticity. Modern scientific investigative techniques were also used by the late Max Fry, for years a criminologist with the scientific police in Zurich, Switzerland, by Ian Wilson, a graduate student of history at Oxford University, by Reverend Morris Green, British priest and historian, and Father Peter Rinaldi, a Turin-born priest who at one time was vice president of the 7,000-member Holy Shroud Guild in the United States. Now, these few names are only the tip of the proverbial iceberg when it comes to naming experts on the Shroud of Turin, but some of the earliest studies on the Shroud have also been the most remarkable. Max Fry, the Swiss forensic expert, aided by photographic enlargements, studied the micro-sedimentations present on the fabric, and he identified pollens, indicating not only the shroud's likely provenance, but its itinerary in the years before it reached Turin. Over 30 specific pollens were named as belonging to plants in the Palestine area, Turkey, and Western Europe. Each plant, even now extinct ones, has its own specific pollen distinguishable from all other plants and as individual as fingerprints. Fry's long voyages, arduous studies, and astounding results played a major role in lending credibility to the authenticity of the shroud. Ultraviolet photography was first used in 1969 by Giovanni Battista Giudica Cordiglia, the son of the famed professor of legal medicine. This method, frequently used by police and art experts, traces organic substances which, if present on a tissue and illuminated by a mercury lamp, emit fluorescences that show up on the special photographic plates. Ultraviolet photography aids in neutron activation analysis and the evaluation of the origin of fibers and organic substance on these fibers, and it was instrumental in Max Fry's incredible findings. American contributions have been significant over the years. Dr. Donald Lynn of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, used enhanced photograph and aided image techniques, similar to those employed when the American spaceship Viking sent photos back from Mars. With the aid of a scanner, the markings on the shroud were broken down into a series of microscopic dots, and these in turn were translated into a mathematical code. The codified dots were then fed into a computer whose multiple readings provided information on the composition of the fabric, organic substances on its surface, and last but not least in importance, an electronically enhanced image of the entire shroud. Now, the enhanced photograph technique in the case of the shroud gave a three-dimensional effect. Simply put, it's much like listening to a Beethoven symphony in stereo. Nothing new is added to the original music, but its value is now enhanced. With the shroud, the original images were reinforced. 
In the 1970s and 80s, Captains John Jackson, a physicist, and Eric Jumper of the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs used in their research both a micro-densitometer and an image analyzer, the VP-8, which gave a third dimension, that of depth, to the photographs. Their process translated electronically the diverse light intensities of the photographs of the shroud into a third-dimensional image. Whereas normal photographs show light and shadow, theirs also showed depth, the distance of the shroud from various parts of the body, in an analysis of flat versus volume. These modern methods of photography and scientific laboratory analysis allowed the human eye to see what previously went unnoticed, and they confirmed beyond a doubt the authenticity of the shroud. Earlier accusations of a falsification by painting were destroyed, as, with painstaking slowness and precision, it was revealed that someone who wanted to forge this would have to have been erudite in modern photographic techniques in order to recreate the perfect negative image on the shroud. He would also have to have been skilled in medical sciences to have known about the process of blood plasma separation represented by the carmine color stains on the shroud. The late Monsignor Ricci, whom I mentioned last week as one of the foremost world's experts on the shroud, told me in our first conversation those many years ago that surgeons reconstructing what has been read in the many photographs confirmed the exactness of anatomical details. The state of rigor mortis is in perfect accord with the biblical description of Christ's crucifixion. Studies of the various blood flows revealed the crucified man to have been in positions both of relaxation and then of pulling himself up. Surgical experiments also revealed that if a body is nailed to a cross through the palm of the hand, the sheer weight of the body tears the flesh in a short time, thus offering no support. However, if a nail is placed through the wrist in the so-called desto space, the weight will be more easily borne for a longer period. In addition, the carpus area of the wrist contains the median nerve, a highly sensitive motor nerve, and if a nail is hammered into this nerve, it causes the thumb to bend inward toward the palm. This fact shows up on the hand imprints of the man on the shroud, where only four fingers are visible. Close study also revealed that the legs were slightly bent and that only one nail was used to pierce both feet evidenced again by the flow of blood. This nail allowed the crucified man upward movement and both wrist and feet wounds showed he was alternately in a position of relaxation and of upward movement, thus avoiding death by suffocation that would have occurred had he remained only in a hanging position. For years, the most debated point was the exact cause of death of the man of the shroud. The strong arguments against the death by suffocation seemed to offer on the one hand conclusive proofs for death by infarction and hemopericardium, that is, the breaking of the heart. Monsignor Ricci's intensive studies were based on a theory put forth in the mid-19th century by an English physician, William Stroud. Dr. Stroud's research was favored by the fact that autopsies could be performed in England as soon as two hours after death whereas on the continent there was a mandatory interim of 48 hours. Basing his studies on St. John's Bible passage, quote, and immediately there came out blood and water, quote, referring to the soldier's lance peering the side of Christ two hours after his death, 
Stroud proceeded to prove that had the heart been undamaged prior to death, the blood and water, the plasma, would have flowed out mixed together in a single liquid. Whereas in a previously ruptured heart, the blood would already have separated into two elements, the red corpuscles and the plasma. Thus, the hypothesis based on the biblical eyewitness accounts and supported by actual autopsies of a ruptured heart. The intensive mental anguish of Gethsemane that caused Christ to sweat blood even before his ordeal, the extreme shock caused by multiple scourge marks, there were over 120 separate lashes deeply inflicted, and these can be counted by blood marks on the shroud. The pain and the loss of blood through flagellation and the crowning with the helmet of thorns all combined to cause heart failure. Christ's loud cry at the moment of death, utterly impossible in the case of suffocation, announced the moment of rupture. Modern cardiology supports the theory that extreme moral stress can precondition the body for heart attacks and that, given even minor physical provocation, the heart will give in to this stress. While archaeologists, scientists, doctors, and theologians have probed, read, analyzed, and interpreted the shroud to determine its authenticity, artists have played their role in determining its provenance and suggesting the identity of the man in the shroud. In the first centuries after Christ, artistic representations of the cross depicted Christ as a fish. Its letters, spelled out in Greek, mean Jesus Christ, Son of God the Savior. They also depicted him as a lamb. The figure of Christ man on the cross was non-existent. Slowly, however, in the post-Constantine era, when Christians were allowed more freedom of expression, crosses appeared with a toned-down, fully clothed Christ. Curiously, the Byzantine art of the 4th to 11th centuries brought a coherence to the art of the cross, depicting a bearded Christ, half-nude, suffering and nailed to the cross, suggesting that the shroud had been exposed in the Eastern world in that period and that artists portrayed what they saw on the shroud. Contemporary art in the Western world, however, still showed Christ fully clothed and usually beardless, thus providing a strong argument for the historians who quote the shroud as first appearing in the West only after 1204. In the magical encounters between the ancient relic and men of science, art, and theology, the greatest mystery today lies in the question, how did the bodily imprints get onto the linen? Now, two theories are prevalent. Perhaps Monsignor Ricci, referring to these theories, best answered when he said, where research ends, faith begins. For researchers, the imprints could have been caused by the powdered aloes and myrrh spread on the shroud in a temporary effort at preservation of the body prior to full burial. For the Jews, the quickening approach of the Sabbath allowed only hasty pre-burial rites. These substances could have had a chemical reaction due to vapors or body liquids and the dampness of the tomb, thus causing the imprints to surface. On the other hand, they could have been caused by an inexplicable release of energy, a microsecond burst of radiation scorching the surface of the cloth. To date, there has been no scientific proof that would give credence to this second theory. Outstanding, however, were the findings of Baima Bologna and Rodante that would confirm the first theory as being scientifically irrefutable. Their repeated experiments proved consistent in their results. 
if a fabric impregnated with aloes and myrrh and in direct contact with a body covered with coagulated blood stains was exposed to conditions of humidity or moisture, there would appear in approximately 36 hours bodily imprints identical in nature to those of the shroud. In 1988, a carbon-14 dating test was performed on scraps of the shroud in independent tests in laboratories in Tucson, Arizona, Oxford, Great Britain, and Zurich, Switzerland. Test results said the shroud dated from 1260 to 1390, which, of course, would rule out it being used during the time of Christ. However, tests done since then by scientists at the University of Padua in northern Italy used the same fibers from the 1988 test but disputed the findings. The newer examinations date the shroud to between 300 BC and 400 AD, which would put it in the era of Christ. Brendan Whiting, author of the 2000 book, The Shroud Story, introduced the world to the most powerful evidence that the 1988 Shroud C14 dating test was invalid. Most recent tests have determined that the earlier carbon dating test results were likely skewed by contamination from fibers used to repair the cloth when it was damaged by fire in the Middle Ages. In addition, there would have been contamination from the hands of the nuns used to repair the cloth. Now, the Catholic Church has never pronounced itself officially on the authenticity of the shroud or the identity of the man nor is it, quote, within the church's doctrinal definition to declare the authenticity of any relic. Importantly, the church has never denied its authenticity. Several popes have openly expressed reverence for the shroud, and Pope Pius XI dedicated a prayer to it. In September 1936, he said, There is still much mystery surrounding the sacred object, but it is certainly sacred as perhaps no other thing is sacred. And assuredly, one can say this as an acknowledged fact, even apart from all ideas of faith or Christian piety, it is certainly not a human work. Paul VI said perhaps only the image of the shroud gives us something of the mystery of this human and divine figure. More recently, Pope Francis and his predecessor, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, both described the shroud of Turin as an icon, and St. John Paul called the shroud a mirror of the gospel. Hundreds of scholars from a variety of fields have spent hundreds of thousands of hours and millions of words researching and writing about the Shroud. This could be a book-length account if it were to include mention of only a score of these scholars. The question remains, who is the man of the Shroud? The answer has been almost unanimous since experiments done following Secondo Pia's photograph in 1898. Syndenologists, experts on the Shroud, some even previously atheists, have paralleled their findings with the evangelical count of the death of Jesus, and they conclude that scientific, objective evidence proves the man to be Jesus. When asked if he believed the man of the Shroud was Christ, Monsignor Ricci told me years ago there was perfect agreement between the gospel account of the death of Jesus and the story told by the Shroud. He said, if one had recourse to the gospel, the document of faith, and to a careful reading of the Holy Shroud, the archaeological document, you see that both speak of Christ with unmistakable certainty. For more information on these stories, or to check out Joan's blog, and to ask her a question, go to EWTN.com. That's EWTN.com. 
Thanks for listening to Vatican Insider on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.